Hello, everyone. I'm Christopher Brick, and I want to welcome you back once again to Intervals, a public humanities podcasting initiative of the Organization of American Historians. We of the OAH are the world's largest professional society devoted to the study and teaching of American history. And these days, there are more than 7,000 of us toiling away on some aspect of the American past. Today's lecture, though, comes to us courtesy of Dr. Shannon E. Duffy, a very gifted senior lecturer from the Department of History at Texas State University in San Marcos. The title of Shannon's talk, Smallpox and Early America, 1492 to 1793, is disarmingly simple for a topic as laden with complexity as this one is. And I really want to applaud Shannon for opening up this content to all of us in such an engaging, accessible way. It's not easy to distill into a brief 40 minutes that several centuries of human interaction with a pathogen like variola major, a virus whose impact on the history of vast early America is a question that historians have wrestled with for a long time and are likely to continue analyzing and rethinking for the simple reason that you can't really grapple with the American past from the 15th to the 18th centuries without considering the history of smallpox. And today, Shannon's here to help us do just that. She's one of the real master teachers that we were fortunate to have joining us this season. And as you listen, I think you'll find, as I did, that through her narration, it becomes possible to glimpse just a bit of the enormity of what smallpox unleashed on the human hosts it infected throughout the Americas in this period, a disproportionate number of whom were indigenous first peoples. Lacking the immunological exposure to smallpox that had long been endemic to vast sections of Europe, Africa, and Asia for millennia prior, the native inhabitants of early America were particularly susceptible to the dangerous virus that Europeans brought with them to the continent. And when they did so, they brought with them as well a biological calamity that transformed that virus, variola major, at long last into a fully, truly global pandemic that went on to persist in one way, shape, or form until the virus itself was finally eradicated in 1979. So while the full history of smallpox transmission lasts nearly 3,000 years, beginning to end so far as we can date and record it, Variola Major's most lethal iteration arises at this moment in the late second millennium of the Common Era. But... This is not just a story of despair, biocatastrophe, but of survival as well, resilience as well, and of the beliefs, institutions, communities, and technologies that intersected with the history of smallpox along its road to extinction, not anything or anyone else's. Karen Yokota will be joining me for the Q&A after this lecture, so be sure and stick around for a really memorable and Surprisingly fun conversation for a topic as laden with, with heft as this one. As informative uh, as this discussion with Shannon was, it really was a great deal of fun as well. Uh, and with that, I now want to open it up to Shannon Duffy on The Speckled Monster, Smallpox in Early America, 1492 to 1793. Hi there. Uh, I'm Shannon Duffy. Welcome to my podcast, which is Smallpox in Early America. 
Uh, I wanted to start off by talking, uh, mentioning something that Frank Snowden, who is a uh, historian of infectious diseases, uh, said in his book, uh, Epidemics in Society in 2019. He made a couple of comments I thought were really interesting. Uh, he said that, you know, diseases, studying diseases in history often is seen as like this esoteric subfield. Uh, but disease is as central to human history as wars and other big phenomenon. Uh, he also points out that before the 20th century, infectious diseases are literally the leading, uh, the leading cause of death throughout all of human history. Even in wartime, soldiers are more likely to die from disease than they are from their wounds. Uh, and the third thing that he points out is that epidemic diseases, infectious diseases, have a unique uh, effect on the human psyche that other kinds of diseases don't. Uh, you know, the, the panic, the hysteria, the scapegoating, uh, occasional uh, resorts to religious enthusiasm, uh, they, have, they play a unique role in society. Uh, all of these things are particularly true for smallpox, which is really the great killer uh, in the Americas pretty much throughout the whole colonial period. Uh, it's something that plays an outside role uh, in the period of European conquest, the initial period of settlement. Uh, it shapes colonial American society, and then it'll come back to play, again, an outside role during the revolution. So a little bit about smallpox. There's actually two versions of smallpox. The one we're talking about is variola major, which is by far the more lethal one. This is an this is an ancient disease. I mean, the first evidence of it is, you know, back in Africa and Asia, going back to 2,000 years ago, uh, it's first described for the first time in the historical record by a physician in Baghdad, Razis, uh, in the 9th century. This is something that hit the Roman Empire. So this is a very old disease. Uh, it was probably first brought to Europe during the period of the Crusades. Uh, the fact that it is old, the fact that it is introduced to Europe uh, centuries before the age of colonization actually will play a role. Uh, its name, I thought this was interesting, its Latin name, varus, just means pimple. Um, pox, uh, its nickname is from the pustules. Uh, one of the things I wondered about was why smallpox? You know, what's the big pox? Uh, well, as it turns out, the pox, uh, the pox is syphilis, is, is an STD. Uh, and that will actually come up because there's kind of a pun uh, on the name pox. In the colonial period, it is also called the speckled monster. Uh, and as another historian noted, it is not necessarily the most lethal disease in colonial America, but it might well be the most feared uh, because of you know, how nasty it is and how debilitating it is to its survivors. Uh, this is a respiratory virus. Uh, it's usually spread by respiration, but it is also a fomite. Uh, and it can actually particularly linger on cloth for weeks, which also will be uh, play a role in colonial American history. Uh, and this version, as I said, there's a variola minor, which is about 1% uh, lethal. Variola major is about 30% lethal, which is a pretty high lethality. Uh, that combined with its incredible contagion is one of the reasons it is so dangerous. So what is it like if you get smallpox? Good news is you generally will not get it today. Uh, first of all, about 12 days after you're infected, you're going to feel like you had a mild flu. You'll get over that. You'll be relieved. Uh, it's just starting. About four days after that, a rash spreads across the body. Uh, and then after the rash, pustules develop. And if you have a really bad case, these pustules will actually run all together. Most people will die if they have this. It can entirely cover the skin. Uh, eventually, uh, the pustules... Uh, uh, scab up and then they fall away. When they fall away, they leave deep permanent 
uh, pits, uh, scars. So this is something that is permanently disfiguring. Uh, in the colonial period, as many as one third of the survivors also could be blinded. Uh, we also now know it causes male infertility. Uh, it is probably the reason that George Washington never had children. It may be the reason Andrew Jackson never had children. Uh, this is not a disease that discriminates. Throughout European history, even royalty got it. Uh, if you remember Elizabeth I, the pictures of her with that white makeup, that was to hide smallpox scars. Uh, the good news is uh, you only get it once. Uh, as Elizabeth Fenn said, who is one of the big historians of smallpox, it leaves you either immune or dead. Uh, it's related to both the chickenpox and the measles, and like them, it is incredibly contagious. Uh, one medical expert said if you didn't have a natural immunity, meaning you hadn't caught it before, if you walked through a room, you almost certainly would come down with it. And as I said, throughout uh, the, the period of, especially the age of exploration, smallpox is the biggest killer throughout the Americas. Uh, one thing to note is by the 15th century, 1492, you know, 14th and 15th century, it is endemic in Europe. And what that means is that it just exists. Uh, it is a permanent disease, so it is a killer of children. Every generation, uh, you know, the kids are going to get it. Uh, babies do have some immunity from their mothers. Uh, but the little kids are the most at risk. Some of those children are going to die. But the adults are generally immune. What that means is the conquistadors, your John Smith types, they're immune when they come to the Americas. And of course, the Native Americans are not. Uh, and of all the diseases that will just devastate uh, the Americas uh, throughout the whole period of colonization, this is by far the worst. Uh, it seems to have been first introduced at the uh, island of Hispaniola around 1517, probably Columbus's second voyage. Uh, and the death rate, of course, there's a great deal of debate about how many people lived in the Americas before the Europeans uh, first really arrived. Uh, but generally, there were probably, based on contemporary accounts, as many as two and a half million people just living on the island of Hispaniola at the beginning of the Spanish conquest. Uh, within a half century, the population is a fraction of this. Uh, by the early 1600s, which is when mainland Anglo-America settled, it is ravaging all the way from from New England all the way to the Chesapeake. And of course, this is one of the major reasons why Powhatan's group, why the New England Indians, the Pequots, cannot really mount an effective military resistance. And a very clear example, early example, this is what happened to the Aztec Empire in Mexico. Uh, the Aztec Empire may have held as many as 16 million people uh, at its height. Uh, its capital, it uh, Chisinitsin, never can say that capital. Uh, its capital alone had about 200,000. And of course, through the famous story of Hernando Cortez, how exactly do the Spaniards take this with 500 men, which is the story that Cortez told. Um, Chechen Itzen was was in the uh, at the end of a seven day I'm sorry a seventy day uh, epidemic disaster from the smallpox. Uh, the royal it had hit the royal family. It had hit, killed several members of the royal family. Uh, it had killed a great number of the people who basically were the leadership at Chechen Itzen, uh, and it just devastated the entire capital. The population had fallen by about forty percent. So in other words, Cortez and his men in addition to other things that were going on, they arrived in the middle of an epidemic. And this is a story that will happen again and again in the Americas. Um, uh, we have for the 16th century, uh, slightly better numbers, uh, courtesy of the Spaniards, 
1519, the population for Aztec, Mem uh, Aztec Mexico is estimated around 30 million. Uh, half century later, in 1568, uh, the population is between 1.5 and 3 million. Now, this is not all smallpox, uh, but one thing I should note about smallpox is smallpox makes you vulnerable to other diseases in its wake uh, so that it can be a contributing factor for secondary epidemics. Uh, one quote that we have from a contemporary at the time, Bernal Diaz, who is Cortez's chronicler, in 1520, he said, we could not walk without treading on the bodies and heads of dead Indians. I have read about the destruction of Jerusalem, but I do not think the mortality was greater there than here at Mexico. Indeed, the stench was so bad that no one could endure it. Even Cortez was ill from the odors which assailed his nostrils. Poor guy. For the people who settle mainland America, New England, the Chesapeake, the first generation, uh, these people are, of course, also European-born. So that, what that means is for them, smallpox was also something that maybe it had killed members of their family, siblings. But as they are generally arriving as adults, they have a certain immunity. But what happens as colonial America becomes more mature, more mature colonial society, is that a larger percentage of the population is American-born. And as this happens, immunity drops. So just to give you some statistics, over the course of the 17th century, about 60% of the American immigrants are going to contract the disease and about 10% die of this. But by the mid 18th century, most, uh, most colonial Americans have not been exposed to it. And this is in striking contrast to the Europeans. Uh, Europeans, including English, of course, uh, it is still endemic in Europe and England. This is going to play a very big role uh, in, the 18, in the 18th century, uh, especially after when we get to the period of the French and Indian War and particularly the American Revolution. Uh, and for colonial Americans, the areas that have sort of the most settled populations and non-mixed, what I mean is uh, fewer constant immigrants coming, especially from continental Europe, uh, this is New England and the Chesapeake, they have the lowest rates of immunity. Uh, another thing to keep in mind about colonial America is it's mostly countryside, it's mostly rural. Uh, and so people away from the cities also are going to be a lot more vulnerable. And this plays a big role in why 18th century Europe and America have very different reactions once the concept of inoculation is introduced in the West. Smallpox is actually going to be the very first disease that the West has sort of a method of combating. I mean, not just treating, but actually trying to avoid. Uh, so what is inoculation? Inoculation is the more dangerous forerunner of today's vaccination. Essentially, what you're doing with inoculation is you have someone who's sick from the smallpox. Uh, you, you make basically, you make a cut in one of the pustules. This may not be a lecture you want to listen while eating lunch. Uh, you make a cut in one of the pustules, uh, take some of the pus, and you're actually going to introduce this into the bloodstream of someone else. Uh, and this will give the second person smallpox, but generally they will get a milder version. Uh, inoculation is an extremely old Eastern practice. This is something that China, Africa, Asia have been practicing. There's evidence in China as far back as 1000 BC. Uh, interesting, I thought the, the, the European name for it, inoculation, actually it's a gardening term. It comes from potatoes. Um, but the thing about inoculation, if you think about sort of vaccination debates today, uh, the vaccination debates are not new. Really from the very beginning, this idea was introduced into Western science. It is extremely controversial uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, it is counterintuitive. Uh, and it sort of still is today. You are taking someone, especially in the case of inoculation, 
who is healthy and you're deliberately making them sick uh, and they will get sick and they will have, you know, the, the usual uh, run of smallpox, a mild aversion, but they still can die from it and some will. Uh, and the second thing is that it is dangerous because they have smallpox uh, and because, and I think I forgot to mention this, smallpox has a long course. Uh, you know, from the time, you know, you get your rash, uh, you, you break out uh, in your pustules, eventually they scab. This entire process takes a month. Uh, and from the, from the moment you get the, the, the first, you know, first symptoms to the moment the last uh, the last scab falls off of you, you are contagious. Uh, and so it is, it is a dangerous process. Uh, and it is, you know, it has, it is basically controversial from the first moment it is introduced. The fact that it is an Eastern concept, as you'll see, also plays a role. It was introduced pretty much at the very turn of the 18th century to Europe. Uh, one of the very first accounts we find, uh, Joseph Lister, who is an East India Company representative, uh, wrote an article about it to the Royal Society, which is pretty much uh, England's premier scientific organization in 1700. He was proposing the Chinese method, which is dried scabs up the nose. Somehow this didn't catch on. Uh, it was really introduced to England in 1721 uh, by, you might kind of call her the 18th century equivalent of a jet setter, didn't have jets back then, uh, Lady Mary Wortley Montague uh, was a very cosmopolitan, uh, very uh, prominent socialite at the time, very, very respected and esteemed. Uh, she was visiting Constantinople, which is, uh, you know, was a city where inoculation was very common. While she was in Constantinople, she learned about it. And it made a big impression on her, apparently, because she had lost a beloved younger brother. And this is often the case with Europeans. She had survived. She was herself immune. Uh, but in childhood, she had lost a brother to inoculation. And because of this, she makes the decision to inoculate her own very young children. Uh, she actually did her son while she was there, uh, but she wanted to inoculate her daughters when she returned turned to England. Uh, and this was initially quite controversial. Um, you know, this is sort of a rather uh, typically aristocratic solution to the problem of trying something that might be dangerous. Uh, they first tried it out on doomed prisoners in the Newgate prison. Uh, they, the prisoners got what I think is uh, a deal you can't beat, uh, which is they were going to be executed anyway. If they would try out this new inoculation procedure, then they would be let free. Uh, and after that, they tried it on all the orphans in the London prison. Uh, and when both of these groups, uh, you know, nothing untoward happened to them, uh, it becomes somewhat more socially acceptable. Uh, a big sort of, I think, kind of uh, psychological barrier was breached when one of the heirs to the throne, Princess Caroline, actually inoculated her own daughter, which of course then uh, makes it somewhat more socially acceptable. Interestingly enough, uh, New England is finding out about inoculation the exact same year, which is 1721, but there doesn't seem to actually be a link between the two of them. Uh, what is going on in Boston in 1721 is the worst epidemic that Boston has seen in an entire century. And New England, of course, in the colonial period was generally healthy. Uh, but in 1721, the HMS Seahorse, uh, a ship from, uh, from the West Indies, uh, had sort of snuck into the harbor breaking quarantine, 
that was uh, rather common, uh, and it brought smallpox into Boston. Uh, and in a one-year period, uh, Boston, which had a population of around 11,000, had over 6,000 cases and over 850 deaths. Uh, another 900 people fled the city. Uh, and because of this, uh, one of the leaders of Boston, Cotton Mather, Yes, it is that Cotton Mather, if you remember the Salem Witch Trials. Uh, this is sort of probably the most prominent Puritan ever, most prominent Puritan minister ever. Uh, he had played a role uh, for which his reputation had uh, suffered rather a hit, uh, encouraging the Salem Witch Trials. He's an old man by this point. Uh, he is someone, even though he was you know, a leading religious figure, he's a brilliant man, was a brilliant man. Uh, a graduated from Harvard at 15, uh, has the largest library in New England. He had always been fascinated by science, and he had actually learned about the inoculation procedure uh, and decided to introduce it into Boston uh, with the help of one of the local physicians, a guy named Zebdiel, uh, Zebdiel Boylston. Uh, the two of them basically uh, write to sort of the local physicians in town, uh, trying to get them to come on board with this new idea. Uh, Mather had actually learned about it from his own West African slave, Onesimus. Onesimus had told him he had undergone this procedure, which had given him something for the smallpox, and that his people back in Africa had long known how to do it. But I think it's interesting. Mather didn't really start believing this until a few years later. He read about it in one of those Royal Society reports. However, once Mather introduces it, there is an absolute firestorm of opposition to it. Uh, pretty much almost all the other leading doctors opposed it. Uh, the person who was really leading the attack uh, was Dr. William Douglas, uh, and uh, the religious leaders of the community also opposed it. Now, some of this was religious. Uh, Boston 1721 is still uh, still got that old-time Puritan religion, uh, but there also is a scientific opposition to it. If you think about sort of, and again, this is something that comes up again and again, both with inoculation and later vaccination. If you think about the Hippocratic Oath, uh, this, is op this is seen as in opposition to the Hippocratic Oath. You are deliberately causing harm to a well person. Uh, and then also, of course, there was this argument that you were violating divine law. Uh, Mather's house was almost burned down as a result of the controversy. Somebody threw a bomb through one of his windows uh, with a note that said, Cotton Mather, you dog, damn you, I'll inoculate you with this, a pox with you, which again, uh, pox is a pun because it does have sexual connotations. Uh, one thing that's interesting I found about this contest that in some ways it's pitting the forces of old time religion uh, against the rising forces of the scientific enlightenment, which is kind of you know, the 18th century movement. Uh, if you look at the person who's leading sort of the anti-inoculation charge, Dr. William Douglas is very different than Dr. Boylston, uh, Dr. Zebdiel Boylston. Douglas was university trained in Edinburgh, which is the best medical school pretty much in all of Europe. He's trained in Paris. Uh, whereas Boylston, like a lot of American doctors, uh, was, was basically home trained. He's an apprentice. Uh, and Douglas presents inoculation as something that, you know, quacks and meddlesome superstitious preachers uh, are pushing. Uh, another big uh, opponent of uh, inoculation was the leading new newspaper, uh, the New England Current. Uh, new England Current, uh, which is going to be sort of this new voice for the press, uh, was being run by James Franklin, who is Ben Franklin's older brother. Uh, and, you know, a lot of Franklin's opposition to it was because it was being pushed by Mather. Uh, Mather, to him, was sort of a holdback from sort of the old Puritans uh, that had been running New England. England. Of course, the interesting thing about this situation is in this situation, the old guard were actually right.
when I read about that story for the first time, I wondered, how was Ben Franklin responding to all of this? Because Ben Franklin, of course, had grown up in Boston, and he actually was a young man. He was 15 years old at the time of the Mather controversy. He doesn't seem to have said anything when he was working for his brother James, who was rather a bad taskmaster. That might have had something to do with it. Uh, but, Matt, uh, but Ben Franklin actually will become later one of the leading early advocates for inoculation once he moves to Philadelphia. Uh, as early as the 1730s, uh, he is throwing his printing presses behind supporting inoculation. Uh, one big factor here seems to be that in 1736, he lost his young son, Frankie Franklin, uh, to the smallpox. Uh, this was something that he actually mourned for years. The gravestone that he put up describes this kid who was about four years old as the delight of all that knew him. Uh, at the time that he lost this little boy, he took a time out from grieving to actually write to the newspapers because there had been a rumor at the time that Frankie Franklin had died from being inoculated. And Ben Franklin basically said, no, uh, he died in the natural way. That was the expression they used if you just caught it naturally. Uh, he was only four years old. He was kind of small for his size. He'd been ill. We were holding off getting him inoculated. Uh, and when Franklin wrote his autobiography in 1788, he was still regretting this. Uh, he wrote, in 1738, I lost one of my sons, a fine boy of four years old, by the smallpox taken in the natural way. I long regretted this bitterly and still regret that I had not given it to him by inoculation. This I mention for the sake of parents who admit that operation. And Franklin, through his newspapers, and of course, one of the leading newspaper editors, uh, basically kept arguing mainly through statistics. And this was sort of a very enlightenment thing to do. Uh, yes, inoculation is dangerous, but look at the deaths from inoculation versus the deaths in the natural way. It is still a hard uphill battle for colonial America. And the reason for this is that Given colonial America's circumstances, in some ways, inoculation can be seen as more dangerous. And the reason for this, again, uh, to inoculate your patients, uh, you basically have to keep them, you know, they're going to come down with smallpox. They're going to have smallpox for a month. During that month, you have to keep them in strict quarantine. Uh, while they are suffering from smallpox, their immune system is also suppressed so that they can come down with secondary infections. And if anybody breaks quarantine, if people, you know, come in or out or your patient leaves, what you're actually risking is setting off an actual smallpox epidemic. And considering that by mid, you know, early mid 18th century, colonial America doesn't have high rates of smallpox, naturally, this seems like a dangerous thing. Uh, so what, are, what is colonial America doing to combat smallpox uh, in other ways? Uh, you know, sort of in keeping with enlightenment principles, they try to, you know, it's associated with filth. So they have have street cleaning. Uh, they try to regulate their markets, their greengrocers, their butchers. Um, somewhat more effectively, uh, whenever a ship reaches port, uh, it is supposed to sit there for 40 days. The idea here is to make sure no sailors had gotten sick. They actually had been doing that since 1701. Uh, the ship that had started, the 1721 uh, epidemic, had actually broken quarantine. And, excuse me, uh, this generally works until mid-century with the outbreaks of the French and Indian and particularly the American Revolution. Uh, because what happens uh, after 1750 is you start having you know, thousands of English and European German troops tromping all over colonial America. Uh, and this was particularly the case with the outbreak of the American Revolution in 1775. 
Elizabeth Finn, who uh, has probably one of the best titles of a book that I've run into uh, recently, Pox Americana, points out that the smallpox epidemic that hit America in 1775 to 1782 has almost the exact same dates as the American Revolutionary War. Uh, it is basically like the secret weapon of the British, although ultimately it will hurt both sides militarily. Uh, and again, what's happening very, very simply is that most colonial American adults, especially in New England and in the Chesapeake, do not have any immunity to smallpox. They've never been exposed to it. However, most Europeans, including most English, have been as adults exposed to it. Uh, and you know, this had been augmented by the fact that really by mid-century, because of the danger of inoculation, there were laws on the books pretty much throughout New England and the Chesapeake particularly that had actually banned the inoculation procedure. Whereas, uh, by contrast, over on the English side, the, the British Army regularly inoculated their troops because, again, uh, smallpox was simply a... Uh, a regular threat over in Europe. Uh, smallpox will play on the American side uh, a, a major, it will be a major headache uh, for the Patriot War effort, particularly in two places. Uh, in the, the Siege of Boston, which happened in 1775 to 76, uh, George Washington, uh, the Patriot troops pretty much surrounded Boston. Uh, they had an extended siege rather than attacking a much smaller British force. And one of the major reasons for that was smallpox Pox had broken out in the city of Boston. Uh, and there is evidence that the British actually were encouraging rumors uh, that they were deliberately spreading smallpox uh, to keep the patriots from attacking. Uh, but where it really played a role uh, in the American war effort was our rather ill-fated attack on Canada. Uh, the Americans actually have been attempting to, uh, to conquer Canada uh, throughout their colonial history, and it does not work. The Canadians are actually tougher than they look. Uh, but in this case, uh, the attack on Canada in 1770 76 uh, was just an absolute debacle. And the main reason it was a debacle was smallpox. Uh, Benedict Arnold, uh, yeah, his, his sortie, thou he lost thousands of people, uh, including the new commander. Uh, they had actually sent, uh, they had a new commander, uh, Thomas, that had gone up there and uh, you know, they had told him he had never been exposed to smallpox. Uh, you really should get inoculated. He didn't. He was sick within a couple of months. Uh, and he was dead a month after that, along with thousands of his of his troops. Uh, it was actually a complete disaster. Uh, smallpox also affects the Patriot War effort. It really, especially up to 1777, and I'll explain why that dates the turning point, uh, in another kind of long-term way, which is through their recruitment efforts. Uh, again, I mentioned smallpox is probably the most terrifying disease because, you know, it leaves you pockmarked, it leaves you disfigured, it can leave you blind. They don't seem to have known it could leave uh, you infertile, but that's enough by itself, uh, particularly soldiers in the countryside. And again, an awful lot of Washington's troops are coming from the country side are terrified of it. And so this is a major impediment to recruitment. It's also when rumors break out in the camps of smallpox, uh, it's a, a major force for widespread desertion. Um, and again, uh, inoculating the troops is a uh, is an option, uh, but inoculation takes a month uh, during which, of course, your fighting force can't fight. They're debilitated. Uh, but not only that, not only are they uh, vulnerable to spreading the infection, but the nearby community is also incredibly vulnerable. 
the person who basically changes this situation, this is really a situation where one person has uh, a major role here, is George Washington. Uh, Washington himself was actually immune to smallpox. He'd actually caught it as a young man in Barbados. Uh, he fought the Second Continental Congress's war board and a variety of civilian organizations for over two years uh, for the right to inoculate not only his troops, because it's not enough just to inoculate the troops, but also the nearby civilian communities. Uh, and he essentially managed to do this pretty much through military edict. Uh, he wrote Patrick Henry uh, in 1777, you'll pardon my observation on smallpox, uh, I know it is more destructive to an army in the natural way than the enemy's sword. Uh, but pretty much due to his forced inoculation program, uh, the situation for the Americans stabilizes by the end of 1777. So how many people did the Americans lose? Uh, we really will never know, mainly because the Americans keep truly lousy casualty records for the Revolutionary War. Um, they don't distinguish in their records between deaths that come from battlefield injuries and deaths that come from wounds and deaths that come from disease. And for disease, they don't distinguish between the diseases. Uh, but what we do know, John Adams, who was on the war board, wrote his wife, Abigail, that for every one soldier that they lost to a battle injury, they were losing nine soldiers to diseases. And again, the problem with smallpox is we're losing a lot of soldiers to things like typhus, uh, but smallpox can make you vulnerable to secondary. In other words, uh, if you had a smallpox outbreak in the camps, that could then lead to dysentery and typhus because of the general suppression of the immune systems. But smallpox is not just a problem on the American side, which is probably why military historians until recently haven't paid that much attention uh, to the smallpox epidemic that's going on at the same time as the war. Uh, so the, the English are immune, the Germans are immune. How is it affecting the English? Uh, it is affecting them through the black loyalists, the slaves. Uh, the person who is a big figure on this side is the royal governor of Virginia, Lord Dunmore. Uh, the war starts for Virginia only really only days after Concord and Lexington. Virginia kind of missed you know, license plate bragging rights by days. Uh, and the royal governor, uh, he is sort of one of these uh, royal governors. He is, he is an Englishman. Uh, you have to kind of admire these guys. They just keep on swinging. Uh, he was, you have to say, a very inventive uh, governor in terms of trying to find new ways of fighting against the patriots. Uh, in November of 1775, uh, he declared martial law in Virginia. This is Dudmore's proclamation. But what was the most shocking about this proclamation at the time was he offered the slaves who were attainted, uh, attaining to the rebels, uh, if they came and joined the British war effort, uh, they would actually be given their freedom. It's actually the largest, uh, the first large-scale emancipation pretty much in Western history. Uh, and as it turned out, it was only supposed to be the rebels' slaves, uh, but Dunmore is actually trying to build a military force, so he, it turns out, wasn't all that picky. He was taking the slaves that were running away from the loyalists, uh, uh, the loyalists as well. Uh, Dunmore himself is not actually anti-slavery. He happened to actually own a plantation in Virginia. He was a slave owner himself. Uh, he's basically trying to think outside the box. He is trying to disrupt the Virginia rebels' ability to wage, uh, to wage a rebellion. Uh, and at least initially, it works. Virginia's got about a 40% slave population, and between 800 and 1,000 slaves initially start running to Dunmore's lines. Uh, Dunmore actually, he calls these guys the Ethiopian Regiment. He outfits them, and for about two months, they are engaged in guerrilla warfare, raiding the coastline. Uh, early in 1776, though, uh, Dunmore lost control of the capital, and he had to basically move his, his operations to a bunch of warships that are floating in 
the harbor. So it's essentially a floating base of operation. And this is where you, he really starts running into a problem with smallpox. If you can imagine uh, all these people crammed onto the ships and then slaves continue, they're actually swimming to the ships. Uh, and early in 1776, uh, smallpox begins breaking out on the ships. By February, he is losing hundreds of his slaves, uh, and he moves the whole operation to Gwen Island to try to start inoculating his slaves. But again, this is the problem all along with inoculation. You have to keep strict quarantine, and the whole time slaves just keep arriving. Gwen Island becomes an absolute death trap. Uh, you know, as many as, there may have been 2,000 slaves in all, as many as 500 of, slaves may have died by the time that, uh, that Dunmore finally gives up and leaves. Uh, and again, it's not just, uh, it's not just smallpox. Uh, they are also dying from typhus. Uh, medical historians have looked in, you know, why are certain groups particularly vulnerable uh, to smallpox? One thing uh, often is malnutrition, uh, which is something the slaves easily could have suffered from. Uh, and of course, again, uh, another thing is when you're in crowded conditions, uh, which of course Gwen Island would have been. Uh, by the summer, do dozens are daily dying. Uh, July 9th, Dunmore basically just abandons Gwen Island and he leaves pretty much. He takes the, the slaves who are still mobile, but he leaves hundreds of dead and dying slaves all over the island. Uh, this is found by the Patriots, uh, who just absolutely exploit this disaster for all it's worth. Uh, a Virginia Gazette article, July 20th. Uh, this is how they described what they, their first sight of Gwen Island. You might see a poor wretch half dead making signs for water. Another, others endeavoring to crawl away from the intolerable stench of dead bodies lying by their sides. In short, it was a shocking scene. Dunmore's neglect of these poor creatures, suffering numbers of them to perish for want of common necessities and the least assistance, one would think enough to discourage others from joining them. This actually fits really well into sort of the standard patriot narrative that they're trying to use to keep the slaves from running to the British, which is don't trust the British. Uh, they're just after their own uh, their own agenda, and they cannot be trusted to take care of you. Uh, despite this, uh, thousands of slaves will continue to run to the British lines throughout, particularly the Southern campaign, uh, but they will have the same problem. You're going to have the same rates of smallpox infection. Uh, this is particularly the case with the slaves who fled to the British uh, during the campaigns for Savannah and for Charleston. After the revolution, uh, thousands of black loyalists end up pretty much all over the British Empire, and about 500 of them end up in London. Uh, and if you'd been living in London in uh, the years after the revolution, uh, some of the early British abolitionists uh, ran into someone who made a big impression on them uh, and who may actually have been one of the influences for the earliest abolition movement, which, of course, uh, really starts in England. Uh, Shadrick Furman, who had actually been a free person, uh, uh, in Virginia, had joined the British side. Uh, he'd actually worked as a courier, which is a nice way of saying a spy. He was captured by the Americans. Uh, they had tried to get him to talk, and they had flogged him 500 lashes, which usually kills you. Uh, and uh, he'd survived that, but then he caught the smallpox. Uh, and when he arrived in London, he was blind from smallpox. He was lame from being flogged. He was supporting himself on the streets of London as a fiddler. Um, as I said, uh, this, this, this sort of the pathos of 
the story is something, uh, the reason we know about this guy is because uh, some of the early abolitionists wrote about him. Uh, after 1783, smallpox moves west, uh, and it will continue, uh, moves west in, in America, and it will continue to wreak havoc throughout the 19th century. Uh, even more so than the slaves, the Indians seem to have the least immunity to it, uh, and it was probably throughout sort of really the, well into the 19th century, their greatest killer. Around 1798, uh, Edward Jenner in England developed a vaccination, which is a safer and a more effective method of combating it than inoculation. What Jenner had noticed is that out in the English countryside, milkmaids, the, the women who are milking the cows, were not coming down with smallpox. Uh, they caught something called cowpox. Uh, Cowpox, like measles, like chickenpox, is related to smallpox. And if you catch one, you don't catch the other. And so what Jenner was using, quite simply, uh, was he was inoculating not with smallpox, but he was using cowpox. He actually, uh, sort of a great 18th century tradition here, started on his own family. Uh, and after this is really when the rates uh, for smallpox deaths uh, really start dropping drastically. But it continues to be a killer, especially in the non-developed world, really into the 20th century. Uh, today, smallpox is the only creature that humans have deliberately rendered extinct. Uh, we've killed lots of things accidentally, but they're the only critter. I was trying to think what to call it. It's not an animal, a uh, creature uh, that we have deliberately killed. Uh, in the, there was a campaign by the World Health Organization in the 1960s and 1970s, a concerted global effort to combat it. Uh, it was mainly spreading in Africa. The last known case, sort of in the wild, if you will, uh, the, the, the last case in nature was in 1977. But I think this is a sign of just you know, how dangerous this disease always was and how contagious that that's not the last death. Uh, the last death was actually in England. A year later, in 1978, uh, there had been an, there was an English lab in a building, and there was an accident in the lab, and there was a family that was living down the hall and a flight up that all came down with smallpox. One of the members of the family died. Uh, this is actually the last known death in 1978. Uh, since 1979, uh, smallpox exists hopefully only in labs. I thank you for your attention. Wasn't that just tremendous? I think so. And I think you could probably tell from Shannon's delivery how much fun she was to work with as a participant in this series. And the Q&A bears that out as well. It's a lot of fun. So here you are. Shannon Duffy, welcome to the podcast. Hi there. Happy to be here. We're happy to have you. And when I say we, that's very much on purpose because today we have the pleasure once more of welcoming my wonderful chair of the Marketing Communications Committee, Carrie Ann Yakota. Madam Chair, welcome. Thank you. It's so great to be here. And I always appreciate your welcomes. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. I mean, well, and if you'll bear with me one moment, if you'll permit me this little bit of self-promo on our part and on the part of uh, the committee, uh, because uh, I do think there's going to be some, if you're an OAH member out there and you're listening and you like the work that we're doing with the podcast, or you're interested in helping uh, the community of American historians that OAH brings together to kind of 
deliver content this way and in all kinds of innovative ways and to empower us to be more forward-facing, to reach more people. If you're interested in supporting that work and bring your own perspective to it, I do think there are going to be some vacancies on the committee opening up soon. And I think Carrie Ann and I are good people to work with. Wouldn't you agree, Madam Chair? I do. And I really do second your um, motion to bring people into the fold and to get people involved. We would really appreciate um, new perspectives. And I think it is a great group to work with. So I'm glad yeah. you mentioned Thank it, you Chris. for that. Yeah. I just, I, 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 I appreciate your patience, Shannon, while I plug the committee because, uh, uh, we're just at the beginning of this enterprise. You're one of our very first speakers and very first guests in this inaugural series of the Intervals podcast. Um, so thank you for your talk as well, which I I listened to it three times. I really enjoyed listening to it. I think in particular students will, uh, there's a lot in there for them to respond to, as there was for, for me uh, as well. I wonder if we could start here. Um, uh, with respect to you bring up this date, 1721, several times yes. um, in the talk, because mm -hmm. which seems to me this isn't a date that I mean, I remember having a, a conversation with a couple of Europeanist colleagues back in grad school. So that's a long time ago now. And uh, about the 1720s being this kind of like iconically dull decade. No. And uh, <laughs> turns out it wasn't. No. And there was stuff going on. So I wonder if you could, I mean, talk a little bit more about it. There's, there's some breaks, technological sure. transmission breakthroughs, intercultural breakthroughs that happen around uh, inoculation technology that nobody seems to know about and doesn't really show up on the radar much in terms of these watershed designations that historians like to quibble over, even though we also claim all the time that like dates don't really matter. Um, and then what do we do? We argue about dates. So, dates uh, matter. <laughs> all right. So tell me why, tell me why 1721 matters. And it seems to be a, a very strange coincidence. Uh, so the first thing I guess to just give a little bit of background is in the East, meaning Asia, you know, Constantinople, Africa, no inoculation as a procedure is ancient. I mean, there's evidence going back maybe to the ninth century of knowing how to do, you know, basically introducing a, essentially what you're doing with inoculation is uh, having a mild case, waiting for them to get better. Uh, and then, you know, taking a little bit of the pus and introducing it sometimes through scabs up the nose. Uh, the way we did it was uh, uh, through uh, basically taking a string, making a cut and putting it in. Uh, and by the way, medicine still does not entirely understand why this works, uh, but it does create uh, a less of a case. I mean, you can still die from it, but just in comparison, uh, variola major, which is what colonial America is dealing with, has a 30 to 50% mortality rate, where it was like one to 2% for inoculation. So people have known how to do this in the East for a very long time. In 1700, Lister wrote the Royal Society. He's a royal, uh, a royal, uh, what do you call it? East, uh, the bloody company, uh, the East India Company. He's an East India Company official. Uh, he wrote the Royal Society to tell them about this, this new, this procedure he had seen. Uh, so it's sort of, it's like, in, it's it's in the literature if you happen to see it. And then in se uh, 1716, uh, Cotton Mather read about it. 
Uh, and he also, sometime around that time, uh, his slave Onesiamus told him about it. Uh, but it's in 1721 that there is a bad outbreak of smallpox in Boston. So Reverend Mather had uh, apparently had this idea in his head for a while. He was waiting uh, to think it, waiting to introduce it. And then a ship broke quarantine uh, in 1721. And uh all of a sudden, you have really for the first time, it had hit Boston before, but you really never had an outbreak like this. It was a truly devastating outbreak. Something like over half their population, they're like 11,000 people. About half of them came down with it. Almost 900 people died. Uh, so this is when it was introduced in Boston. And at the exact same time, and apparently there's no relationship uh Lady uh, Montague, uh, Lady Montague Worthy, Mary, Mary Wordley Montague, if I can get her name correct, uh, the ambassador's wife, uh, the British ambassador's wife uh, who to Turkey, uh, she had traveled to Turkey and she had heard about it. She had lost a brother in, child, uh, in childhood to smallpox. So she inoculates her children. Uh, and then she comes back and talks about it. And she's kind of a, you know, a socialite, uh, very, uh, very well known. Uh, so it's literally at the exact same year, but there doesn't seem to be a relationship between the two of them. Uh, Lady Montague is introducing it to the royal court uh, and Reverend Mather is attempting to introduce it in, in Boston. Uh, and there was pushback in both places. It's amazing that, uh, you know, this 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 coincidence happens and it really does seem to be coincidental. They seem to be unrelated. Um, and yet. Right. I mean, there's there's uh, enhanced uh, communications and 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 overlay. Right. Because of institutions like the East India Company and because that kind of uh, uh, articulation, projection of European power overseas into Asia, into Africa. Um, you brought up uh, Cotton Mather mm -hmm. as well, and he surfaces. So he's a significant character right. in uh, early American history. He's also a significant character in the story you tell. Um, so did you work with his records and stuff? Yes. I, mean, I, I, I have actually had the misfortune of having to read Reverend Mather's uh, books. Uh, I first encountered him in my dissertation. You know, he is the most published author in colonial America. He wrote over 200 works. I mean, we mainly think of him as a religious figure, of course, a big figure in the Salem Witch Trials, but he's probably one of the most educated people in colonial America, uh, naturally brilliant, you know, very voraciously curious. Uh, as Perry Miller once said, in the 17th century, the best minds went into religion, you know, where in another time period, they might have gone into something else. Uh, you know, it, it, to be a minister is going to be one of the most respected. Uh, but he also thought of himself as a scientist. Uh, but of course, his reputation he, he is well known. He is also infamous among a lot of people. Uh, that plays a role in the response in Boston to smallpox. Yeah, because it, he he tends to be this sort of like, you know, iconically dour uh, uh, figure, right? From uh, And yet he was the, had a more progressive attitude toward inoculation. I mean, this was pretty edgy technology at cutting the time. Cutting edge, that it, that, as it were. Cutting edge, quite literally. Yeah, well done. Well done. I love that. Yeah. Um, uh, and he was, was he way out on a limb? there in 1721? Yes, I think I, I think he was. I, and, you know, in some ways, and I talked about this in uh, in, in, in uh, the podcast, 
there always is a reaction. Anti-vax sentiment is not new. Basically, as long as we've had inoculation and then later vaccination, there is an emotional pushback. If you think about it, it's kind of counterintuitive. Uh, you are, you know, introducing, first of all, it went against medical thinking of the time period, uh, which is all about expelling poison. You know, this is why balancing the humors, expelling poison from the system, and now you're introducing poison. The other thing to keep in mind is inoculation will make you sick. Uh, you will get smallpox. You were, you were previously healthy, and now you will. You may get a light case, but you will get it, and you are every bit as contagious as somebody who gets it in a natural way, which will later play a huge role in the resistance to it. Because smallpox, you're sick for a month, and that for that whole month. It's very hard today to keep people in quarantine. Uh, think about it at that time period where they really don't even understand how long they need to be in quarantine. It, it, it is dangerous. Uh, so there is pushback uh, on religious, you know, uh, you're, you're thwarting God's will. Uh, but a lot of the biggest opposition to Reverend Mather is really uh, members of the medical community. Uh, William Douglas, who was Scottish educated, the very best medical schools uh, are in Scotland. And whereas Zabdiel Boylston, who is uh, Mather's partner in crime, is just a little country doctor. And so, you know, Reverend Douglas can't even take him seriously. I mean, you've got a preacher, a priest, and then you've got this quack. Uh, and, and, you know, whereas he's been educated in Edinburgh, uh, you know, and so a lot of the pushback was actually really from sort of the scientific community. Uh, Benjamin Franklin's older brother running the, the, the new newspaper at the time uh, was very opposed to it. Uh, there is also, especially in America, there is an element of this has been introduced from the East, uh, in this case, specifically from a slave. Uh, and so Douglas describes this as, you know, like uh, heretical, uh, this is like folk wisdom of barbarians kind of thing. Uh, and so there's also that aspect of the, the resistance to it, that this is, you know, not just an alien concept, but it's also coming from people who are seen as sort of, you know, less civilized. So that tension, that fault line between religion and medicine, religion, science is something that is manifest in that moment as well. I mean, that's still that fault line is very much still there. Right. Uh, you know, another thing that's there that's similar I just found out about to today is uh, fake news false information. Uh, because in the decades after 1721, when they're still arguing about inoculation, there are constant reports coming in from Europe, like there's an outbreak in Naples or there's an outbreak in Paris uh, where a thousand people have died because somebody's tried to do an inoculation uh, or, you know, that that all the women will be sterile. This kind, of, yeah. So you you also have that kind of role of misinformation. I don't know if it's, you know, deliberate, but you know, rumors that people have spread about disasters that have happened in other places. Well, and another thing, though, if I can um, just uh, jump into the conversation here, in your lecture, you talk about the British use of misinformation for political purposes in times of war. Probably the best place to start is the French and Indian War, the, you know, in the 1750s. By that time period, uh, it, pretty much people know it is contagious. Uh, and so they have some idea that you can spread it, say, through 
to uh, blankets, but also uh, by deliberately introducing an infected person. Uh, and it plays a very large role all the way through the revolution. Uh, as I said in my podcast, I think Elizabeth Fenn has the best title for her book, Pox Americana, uh, because there's a smallpox epidemic that has the exact same dates almost as the American Revolution. Essentially, the British are spreading it everywhere they go. Uh, but reading through those records, Carrie Ann, what I'm actually noticing is I think that what the Americans think of as deliberate and they keep saying this over and over again, the, the, the British are deliberately trying to infect us. What's actually going on is by the 1770s, inoculation because uh, European and English rates of smallpox are so much higher. It's, it's endemic over there. It's become a lot more just ordinary that when they have smallpox in their troops, they inoculate them. Uh, and so I, I kept reading over and over again. And then the British are deliberately trying to to. Uh, infect us with smallpox because they're inoculating their people. Well, they're inoculating their people. Anytime they see smallpox, they inoculate. But again, the British also don't really maintain quarantine. And so I don't know that it's a deliberate, certainly the Americans thought of it as a deliberate biological warfare. Uh, I think it's just more um, carelessness. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll, they have a small minority of their troops who do not have smallpox. So whenever they find them, they inoculate them, but then they let them wander around and they go and if they go and infect the uh, rebels, whoops. <laughs> but, but speaking of deliberate infection of the smallpox um, disease, I, I think what most listeners would be familiar with, even those of us who haven't studied this particular subject um, in depth, would be um, the use of these smallpox-infested blankets and giving them to Native Americans. So tell us about that. Um, and was that before or after this this period? Yeah, is, you know, did Americans learn or think, tail, you know, that they're going to use tail, this? Tail, what, and that's one that reason we know that. by the revolution that everybody is more or less aware that this kind of thing can be done. Uh, so this is Lord Jeffrey Amherst, uh, the general uh, on the British side at the tail end of the French and Indian War. Uh, it's basically Pontiac's Rebellion, 1763. Uh, we don't actually know if... Lord Jeffrey actually did this or not. Uh, he recommended it in his letters. Uh, he virulently hated the Indians. Uh, he didn't particularly like, you know, the Americans either, uh, but he really hated the Indians. Uh, he saw them as barbarians. He would say things in his letters about, you know, we should just wipe them out. Uh, and he suggested this. Uh, and there's a lot of debate back and forth about, it seems like it probably was done, uh, but it was probably not done by the general himself. It was probably individual traders, uh, but it probably wasn't necessary because, again, you know, the thing about smallpox, uh, one of the questions you guys asked me to prepare for this was, you know, what makes smallpox so unusual? Uh, why is it so particularly malevolent? Uh, and there's several things. One is it's just insanely contagious. And the particular version of smallpox that's raging in the early American period is uh, variola major. Uh, that actually confused the epidemiologists for a long time because the version we had later, variola minor, is not nearly as contagious. One of the things that had confused epidemiologists for a long time is why is smallpox, and we're talking really from uh, the Columbian exchange throughout really uh, the 19th century, why is it so uh, lethal? Why does it have such a high mortality? Uh, because it didn't in later periods. And it might also not have had it in earlier periods, like the 16th century. Uh, what it is, is there's actually two versions. Uh, there's variola major, 
major and variola minor. And in the time period, pretty much from the Columbian Exchange until the end of the 19th century, variola major is the dominant one. Uh, and it has a mortality rate of between 30 and 50%, which, as we know, is very, very high. Uh, but it's also extremely contagious. Uh, it is sort of in the same camp as measles and chickenpox, where if you are exposed, if, if you have no natural immunity and you are exposed in close contact with somebody, it's like a 90% that you will become infectious. Uh, the other thing that makes smallpox uh, particularly difficult to deal with, even though it's real, it's the first disease for which we have an inoculation procedure. Uh, it's really the first disease for which we have, uh, how do I put it, a proactive way of combating it, uh, is the, the length of time in which you are sick and the level of contagion for most of that time. A month is, you know, I mean, if you go through stages, you get infected, there's about 12 days in which you have the flu for like a couple of days and then you think you're better. And of course, that's when people will be wandering around. Uh, then you get a rash, then you break out in the pustules, then they scab, then they fall off. Uh, from the time you get the fever to the time the last little scab falls off, you're contagious. Uh, and furthermore, the scabs themselves, if they fall into bedding or blankets, uh, sometimes even hard surfaces, they can last up to three months. Uh, I, I, Carrie Ann is now wincing over there. Uh, this is what my students do too. Uh, so it, it is, it's kind of, you know, talking, you know, in comparison to COVID where we talked about the variants being both more contagious and more lethal. That's unusual with diseases. It's usually a seesaw. Usually if they get more contagious, they get le less lethal. This one was both. Uh, and it, it particularly, you know, there's a huge raging debate sort of going back to the Columbian Exchange. Why were the Native Americans hit? that hard. I mean, you know, of course, they die from a multitude of diseases, but from the descriptions, uh, their own descriptions, as well as Europeans, smallpox is by far and away the big killer. Uh, first of all, of course, it's a virgin soil epidemic. Smallpox also tends to take out babies and pregnant women. Uh, and also, because it takes a month, it can completely pretty much wreck havoc with your whole community because, you know, people are getting sick and continuing to stay sick and more people are getting sick. It requires a lot of care. Uh, you know, you're, you're going to have sores. You're, you're going to need people to, 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 you're not even going to have strength to get water for yourself. Uh, and so if the entire community is down, uh, then you probably also have additional fatalities just for lack of care. Yeah, I, 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 it sounds completely terrifying, and and uh, you know one of the the points that you make very early in your talk that I really appreciated, and that you know gave me an, a new way to be thinking about the history of disease and infectious disease in particular is this is this idea of fear, and mm -hmm. because it has this reaction. Uh, it often gives rise to, like you were making the point about, there's something kind of special about about epidemic disease that we don't see. If you if you're talking about if this podcast was about the history of obesity, right? Um, there wouldn't be uh, now. You know, there 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 are disease ecologies for obesity too, um, uh, but we don't see the same kinds of fearful reactions arise. We don't see the same kind of like scapegoating that occurs. We don't see. Um, um, the uh, the the religious revivalism or the uh, transmutation of religious thought patterns that uh, tend to occur in dialogue with 
these epidemics. And so I just wonder if you could reflect on that a bit more. So when I first got interested in diseases in American history, uh, one of the, the books that I read was by a gentleman named Snowden, and he made a point that I actually now start my lecture with, which is that it's sort of three major points. One, the first one is that before the 20th century, infectious diseases are the number one killer of humanity by far and away. Even during wartime, uh, most soldiers are dying from disease. They're not dying from wounds. And I think as historians, we all know that, but we don't really think about it. Uh, the second thing he says is it's not a weird esoteric subfield. Uh, if that's the case, why is it that there are very few people studying disease as opposed to studying war or politics or kingly secession, sort of the man-made stuff? This is playing as big a role, at least as big a role in human history. But it, it, it tends to be this weird little side niche that people don't spend that much time on. And the third is kind of your point that you're making, which is that infectious diseases in, in particular, uh, it's invisible. Uh, they have some sense it's contagious, even if their science at the time isn't supporting that. Uh, they don't understand before the invention of microscopes. They have no idea uh, how they're getting sick. Uh, it freaks people out in a way that nothing else does. Uh, and you see following in the wakes of epidemics, as you say, religious revivals, also political uh, the fact that we're having political upheavals right now, that's actually a constant pattern. You saw it in the Middle Ages with the plague, uh, peasant revolts, uh, just social unrest, uh, as you say, scapegoating. Uh, these are things that are frequently happening at the same time as epidemics. Well, and because this is an OAH podcast, let's talk more about the art or the profession of, of writing history. And I was thinking after hearing your lecture and thinking about um, the history of disease in general, as early Americanists, we've been talking for the past you know, several years about trying to globalize early American history, pushing um, globalization amongst Americanist, you know, American historians. And I think if you're studying something like smallpox, it occurs to me that there you you have to, by definition, write global history, Absolutely. which I find really interesting. And you have to in, incorporate the history of, of war and of politics and nation building. Um, so I, I found that really interesting. Um, and the question I was going to ask in conjunction Conjunction with that um, was um, if you could talk a little bit um, more about the difference in the ways that the American colonists and then later the American citizens um, approached uh, the science of inoculation versus their counterparts in Europe, if you can do sure, a little bit absolutely. more of a... Sure, absolutely. So uh, this, of course, is going to play out in a very big way uh, in the first the French Indian War and then particularly in the Revolutionary War when a whole bunch of Englishmen and Germans show up and start tromping all over America. Uh, because before that point, Colonial America, especially from the latter part of the 17th century to the first half of the 18th century, they have far less threat from smallpox, whereas over in England and in Europe, it's endemic. Uh, by the 17th century, probably earlier than that, it is simply something that is always around. It's a killer of children. Uh, every generation, you know, the kids, the little kids all get it. A lot of them die. Uh, but of course, smallpox is a disease that once you get it, and this is why vaccination works, once you get it, you're immune. Uh, and so, you know, when the very first people come over to colonial America, our conquistadors and all the rest of them, uh, John Smith and his crowd, uh, 
they're adults and so they're immune and it's just, but they can you know transmit it to the indians uh but by about the second half of the 17th century there's sort of less people moving back and forth and especially if you think about colonial america being mostly rural you know we have a few ports but mainly people are living in the countryside uh they have far less exposure uh and so this is why even though they know since 1721 how to inoculate inoculation is dangerous the main reason is people break quarantine and you can start an epidemic where there had not one and it, it happened several times so by the mid 18th century, a lot of several of the uh, different colonies, the colonial legislatures had passed laws against inoculation. Uh, meanwhile, Europe and England have, it's not that they loved inoculation, it was more necessary. And so it had become, you know, uh, like I said, the British army does it as a matter of course, but also they just simply have a natural immunity to it. Uh, there, There's really sort of, there's the two completely different uh, sort of disease patterns going on. And then when you, you know, during the revolution, particularly when a whole bunch of English and Europeans arrive, uh, they, they bring the smallpox with them. And you had actually asked earlier about uh, sort of the role of fear. Uh, George Washington is really sort of single-handedly responsible for finally inoculating the Continental troops during the revolution. And in some ways, the biggest enemy Obviously, his troops dying from it was a serious problem, but the biggest enemy was the fear uh, because he was losing so many troops from rumors. The minute a rumor would spread that smallpox was in a camp, he would have so many desertions. It would be such a hindrance for recruitment uh, that basically he had to do something about it. And going even more, going back to the global, the theme of globalization and going even further afield outside of the Anglo-American world. So you mentioned, for instance, chi for instance, China, right? And I wonder, do you, do you think, and if, I mean, if you don't know that that's not, it's, it's not the exact subject of your lecture that, so that's fine. But I was curious if you knew why, you know, maybe Asian society. So I'm very interested in um, America's relationship with China and with, with Asia. I wonder, um, did you read anything um, that talked about whether Asian societies or African societies had less of that fear or stigma? Um, and I wonder if we could even talk about how um, it it, it comes to today or how today's society, if whether the West or Americans are more fearful of, um, uh, in our case now, vaccination versus other countries around the globe. Uh, I, I don't know about, I can, I'm going to skip on the, on the modern one because I think that's, that's a whole other kettle of fish. I think that has more to do with uh, what I've read recently, societies that are more controlled, uh, versus more individualistic societies. I think that is probably the biggest explanation. Uh, but with regard to uh, colonial America doesn't think it comes from China. Uh, they mainly think it either comes from Turkey, uh, if they've heard about sort of the Turkish, that, that was sort of uh, the, the Turkish cure is one of the things that it gets called. Uh, or as in the case of Cotton Mather, they've heard of it from their slaves. And of course, this would be that those first generations of African-born slaves. Uh, and that is a part of the, the pushback against it, definitely. Uh, the idea that is sort of this Eastern or, uh, you know, again, sort of an infidel kind of thing. Um, but, uh, you know, by the 18th century, of course, white and black, most people in colonial America are native born. And that's, again, that's why the immunity is dropped. 
I I wonder if I could follow up on something uh, that was just particularly of interest to me that I learned from your talk and um, that I, it got me thinking back all the way back to my, 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 you know, 11th grade social studies, history, education. I remember, um, uh, and I think it's a point that holds up actually, because it's, it, I mean, it's not just because it stayed with me all this time, but it, it seems to make sense that um, we were talking about the uh, early Republic period and George Washington's iteration, his two terms as in the presidency and then stepping down, um, that there was a sense among, you probably know more about this than me, I would think, uh, that uh, one of the... Uh, things that the kind of republic had going for it earlier that Washington himself, because he was such the kind of like revered central American figure of that moment, did not have male mm -hmm. children, did not have heir, an heir. There wasn't some kind of concern about a, uh, a system of hereditary privilege being set up or being claimed in his name by a male descendant. Um, before I listened to your talk, I had never thought to mm -hmm. connect that to the history of disease and to um, the history of this disease in particular. So this point you raise about male sterility obviously shapes outcomes for our national story in a way that you helped me put together for mm -hmm. the first time. So thank you very much. Um, but also, I just wonder if, I mean, was it understood at the time? Because when you're talking about an illness that that has that side effect, that has that consequence to it. I mean, now you're really getting into um, uh, real uh, stigma. You're getting into, uh, there's all kinds of opportunities for, I think, gender politics to come into this, uh, <laughs> you know, this, this, uh, the, the way that these diseases are understood and represented and, and, and processed by the people living through. Well, I, if you're asking, did they know it causes sterility? I don't know they've made that connection. They're more focused on the fact that it causes horrible scarring and blindness. Uh, the blindness is what really terrifies people because a, something like one third of the bad cases end up permanently blind. Uh, it's the leading. And of course, uh, the scarring you know, it may seem cosmetic, but uh, especially for women, uh, it was something that was terrified. I just learned that I knew that Elizabeth I uh, is wearing that heavy makeup because of her smallpox. I didn't know she was bald. Uh, that she went completely bald as a result of smallpox. Uh, you know, when the pus, when the the pustules run together, they can basically form like one big old oozing oozing scab. Uh, apparently, that's why she had to wear wigs. Uh, so you know, the fact that Several people said it's not necessarily the worst killer in the 18th century, in 18th century America. It's the one everybody is the most terrified about, uh, the, the, the debilitating qualities. Uh, they, it can leave, you know, leave you so marked up. It can leave you blind. Uh, I don't know if they knew about sterility, but by the way, we actually have two presidents that were probably hit by it. Uh, Andrew Jackson, remember, he caught it as a young man uh, on a American revolutionary prisoner ship. Uh, he also was never able to have children. And I mean, we, we, you can't say for sure that this is why, but it could easily be the reason. Yeah. Super interesting. And, um, I, uh, the more that I think through all the parameters of how endemic, I mean, 
I, I think endemic, that, that yeah. right well, it's just word? always around. Yeah, endemic. endemic. I mean, right. So, I mean, because you, you make the point, it's in, there's it's endemic mm -hmm. in Europe for yes. quite some time, but it takes a little while to gain the kind of foothold here that it actually is really not endemic, endemic in uh, America until after 1790 and then only in Mexico. Uh, it's a sort of a mixed blessing because when it's not endemic, that means that when it hits, it hits with ferocity. Uh, yeah, it, it's sort of a slow but and what, steady what versus a, uh, a hurricane coming through. Could sure. I follow up on that? What accounts for the, you know, Great why, question. why does it not become endemic in, in North America in the same way it is in Europe when the, the, you know, you'd think the, the, the climatological similarities between say Western Europe and, That's, and the Northeast. Okay. So US a couple of things, uh, first similar, of all, you know. it is a weird disease compared to other diseases. It doesn't care what the weather is. Uh, this is something that spreads in the summer or the winter. It, 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 it is only, another thing about it is it's only in humans. It's not a species jumper. And so it kind it, I was actually trying to picture this in my head, uh, earlier. It's like, to keep it alive, it's been around since, you know, ancient times. I mean, it literally goes all the way back uh, almost to recorded history. It always has to be moving from, per I mean, or or the, like the, the scabs can exist for months, but it always has to be moving from person to person. Uh, Europe is just more densely populated, I think is the, the simplest answer to it. Uh, 18th century America does not have that population density uh, so that it, it just it just does not implant there in the same way. And of course, after the 1790s is when vaccination is introduced. Uh, but it still is it's still very much a problem. Uh, it's particularly a problem for America because apparently, you know, there's a lot of things we don't have in the Americas. And one of them is cowpox. Uh, we don't have the cows that get cowpox. And so it actually had to be shipped from Europe and uh, it didn't ship well. It, uh, unlike uh, smallpox, cowpox uh, is a very fragile little critter and uh, doesn't travel well. And cowpox is is, is yes, that is what vaccination. they use, right? And, and, yeah. Right. I was going to say, Shannon, although uh, smallpox doesn't jump from species to species, there is another uh, uh, animal that plays a big part in your story. Right. So maybe you could talk about uh, the difference between and inoculation vaccination. and vaccination. It's funny because we started off by talking about uh, Cotton Mather and his friend uh, Zebdiel Boylston. Uh, and Zebdiel got a lot of flack for just being kind of a country doctor. And this is the story of another country doctor. Uh, Edward Jenner was a country doctor in England, uh, and he noticed that the milkmaids don't get smallpox, uh, but they were getting kind of a localized infection on their hands called cowpox. Uh, and other people had noticed this, but he's really kind of the first one to sort of run with it. Uh, as one study I said I read said, it would take a country doctor to notice this. You wouldn't have noticed it in London because uh, you would not have been around the milkmaids. Uh, and so he borrowed the gardener's son. This is that's such an aristocratic thing to do. Yeah, let's let's test it on the on the little people. Uh, and uh, he inoculated the seven year old boy and it worked. Uh, and so this is basically the beginning of vaccination uh, and vaccination. Uh, and the word inoculation actually comes from uh, eyes like basically potatoes, like how you would grow one potato from another potato. You cut the eyes off. That's where the word inoculation comes from. Vaccination. Uh, Va va vacus is basically cow. So essentially, when we say we're being vaccinated, we're being cowized. Uh, cowized? I don't know. Uh, it, it literally, it just it, it me means that they uh, and there were some during the anti-vax. There were uh, 
uh, pushback that basically showed people growing horns uh, or like some of uh, the 19th century stuff in Europe uh, that uh, people would end up, uh, you know, basically sexually assaulting the cows in the field. Uh, they would become more animalistic. Uh, so again, vaccination also had that same kind of emotional uh, negative response. Uh, it didn't help that you're now introducing an animal's uh, disease into a human body, but it, it's much safer. Uh, and uh, it, it spread like wildfire in, in Europe uh, and in England. Uh, what really delays it in America uh, for most of the 19th century, aside from sort of popular hostility to it, is simply that it's expensive. Uh, it's harder to get. I, um, sure. my final question for this, I mean, such a wonderful talk and you're so <laughs> wonderful to talk to. Um, well, thank you so for having thank me. Thank you for the, this. Uh, yeah, no, it's great. Um, we talk about inoculation, you know, this technology vaccination, that technology evolves into vaccination. Smallpox uh, also seems for all of it, the exceptionalisms that you talk us through with respect to this pathogen in particular, right? Smallpox also bears a uh, an unusual distinction, right, in the history of infectious disease, because later on, I guess in the 20th century, it's the, so, you know, kind of brings us into the present day and everything. Um, uh, it ends up essentially, it's one of the few pathogens we've been able to mm -hmm. completely eradicate, mm -hmm. right? Is there something special about smallpox too that enabled us to and by us, it, it helps human, that it's human only. Uh, that that actually helps an awful lot. Um, why we were able? I, there was first of all, there was a major push. Uh, smallpox after the late nineteenth century is not as lethal because variola minor largely replaces variola major. Uh, but despite the fact that vaccinations are widely available, in fact, I, I just found out that in the United States until nineteen seventy one was still vaccinating for smallpox. Uh, it still was going throughout the, the 20th century. Uh, and so the WHO in the 1970s made a basically an international concerted effort uh, to shut down smallpox. It is the only, I was thinking about what term, the only being, it's not really an animal, the only critter uh, that humans have deliberately rendered extinct. We've rendered lots of things extinct accidentally. This is the only one we deliberately rendered extinct. Uh, and uh, so the very last case of smallpox in the wild, as it were, uh, was in Somalia in 1978. But just to show how dangerous it is, uh, that's not the last fatality. In 1979, there was an English lab that had an accident and there was a family that lived down the hall and one flight up. The whole family came down, one person died from it. The guy who owned the lab committed suicide. Uh, that's actually our last recorded fatality from smallpox. Uh, so as far as we know, smallpox now only exists in labs that hopefully have better security measures than that one. Uh, it, it basically exists nowhere in the wild. And of course, we've stopped vaccinating for it. <laughs> right, yeah. because it's essentially yeah. only exists in labs anymore. Well, Madam Chair, I, I I don't know about you, but I really enjoyed this Q and A, and I want to I want to open the floor up to you one last time in case you have any more questions for our wonderful guest before we. 
Yeah, no, thank you, Chris, for that, for letting me ask one more question. I did also enjoy this so much, Shannon, so thank you. Um, I just thought that since we are in this very peculiar um, and troubling moment in art history, um, whether studying the smallpox um, disease as it spread over time, and I, I think that's also, not only did your lecture encompass a large geographic space. It also gets us, as historians, it moves us through time very, very well. Um, but I'm wondering if, if it gave you any insights into um, what um, our globe is currently facing, the current pandemic, you know, just either about how people and societies deal with the unknown and with fear or maybe something about the way technology um, interfaces with human history. Uh, I, I guess any, it might be any, a cynical thing. I, I tend to take away from history. People don't really change that much. Uh, we tend to be very sort of uh, superior. We assume that we know so much more than the past. We are so much more enlightened and logical and rational. Uh, but, you know, people's responses often are very, you know, very similar throughout time uh, when they are faced with something that uh, they do not understand. Fear is usually the response. Uh, you know, like I said the, the anti-vax movement, disinformation, all this. Uh, it is literally it's been part of the story since since the very beginning, since inoculation was first introduced, uh, including violence. Uh, you know, it's the, the I talked about that there was pushback against Reverend Mather. Somebody threw a bomb through the, the window of his house. Uh, the bomb didn't go off. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, so it, it, uh, later in the uh, early 18th century, uh, attempts to introduce inoculation in other places provoke riots. Uh, and in the 19th century over in Europe, um, you know, there. Uh, even though it's a lot more endemic, a lot more of a constant threat, uh, the only way the British could actually get their population at large vaccinated is to pass a law and mandate it, uh, which they, they did basically about the 1860s, uh, because before that, there was still deep resistance uh, to vaccination. Just as you're saying that, Shannon, it occurs to me, there aren't that many things in, for those of us who study the past, that that really do seem transhistorical, right? Yeah. But infectious disease oh, yeah. is one of them, right? And so, um, actually, that's a you gave me a great way to right. note to wrap this up on because this is early in the series, and it being transhistorical, this story is going to continue. Um, and uh, you know, we hope the listeners continue to tune in to hear the rest of it because there's a lot more. Um, Madam Chair, thank you for for joining us once more. Really appreciate it. It's always wonderful to see you in these Q&As. If the listeners can detect that special lift of joy in my voice, it's always because these Q&As are better when when Carrie Ann Yakota is, is, is here to join me with them. So thank you. Absolutely. And well, thank, thank you for having Janet me. Duffy for this wonderful talk and the wonderful thank Q&A. You. I appreciate it. Janet thank you. Duffy, everyone. All right. I want to thank you all for tuning in for this week's session with Shannon Duffy, Carrie and Yokota, and myself. Please join us again for a next episode when Carolyn Eastman will walk us through a plague in New York City. A young doctor confronts yellow fever in the founding era. We'll see you then.